Hear these words from Matthew chapter 25. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who'd received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents, but the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seeds, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what's yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks for you. You may be seated. Thank you, Connor, for that happy little story. Uh, There's a game that we would occasionally play in youth group back in the day called Bigger and Better. I don't know if any of you have played this. Um, But you'd start, we'd start usually at dinner dinner at somebody's house, the whole high school, and then we'd break up into teams, and each team would get something kind of worthless, like a paper clip or a penny, and then you would go door to door and you would see if you could trade that item for something bigger or better. Then you would get that item, and then you'd go to the next door and try it there, and, and on and on, and then you'd just keep trading until time was up, and we'd see who, who wins, who got the biggest, the best thing. And uh, author Bob Goff tells the story of his son Richard playing that game, and apparently Richard took it really, really seriously. Uh, and he and his buddies went to the first house, and they were able to trade a penny for a mattress. And so the people just, yeah, the people gave him this mattress, and so the guys took this mattress to the next house, and they knocked on the door, and they, said, they told him what the game was going on, and so they traded the mattress for a ping-pong table, and they rolled the ping-pong table to the next house, and in the next house they explained the game, and the, the ping-pong table was traded for an elk head, and then they took that elk head and apparently kept trading and trading until Richard ended up with a Dodge pickup, and it all... <laughs> It's serious. It all started with a penny and an invitation. And the story today reminds me a little of that game. A business owner, a master, gives a gift of differing amounts 
to three of his workers. The amount really doesn't matter to me much in today's message because one talent represents 15 years worth of wages in the first century. So any gift they get of a talent is a lot. Uh, These gifts are extravagant. And we don't know it until the end, but it appears that these extravagant gifts he gives them are really invitations to participate in something. The business owner has really invited each employee, each worker, each servant to accept his gift and see what he can do with it. He wants to see what they're capable of. And in some ways, it feels like a game of of bigger and better. So the master leaves them alone for an undisclosed amount of time. And when he comes back, he's excited because two of the three truly accepted that invitation. They've participated. It's unclear whether they knew what they were in for, if they knew what was expected or hoped of them. In some ways, this story feels a little bit like a secret test that Willy Wonka does to see who gets the chocolate factory in the end. I don't know if any of y'all felt that way. But the business owner examines the first two workers and finds that upon their acceptance of his gift, they tried to see what they could make of it, and both of them doubled the gift. And what does the employer say to these two? Good work. I've seen what you're capable of. You not only accepted my gift, you doubled it. You accepted my invitation to try, to participate, and see what you could do. And you did well. I knew you could do it. From now on, you two can be my partners. You don't have to work for me anymore. You can work with me now. We're in this together. But the last guy, the third guy, he does not participate. He actually did nothing. He didn't even play. He took his gift. He took his master's investment in him that turned out to be an invitation to participate in something greater, and he buried it. In Luke's, uh, in Luke's version of the story, it says he stuffed it in a napkin. <laughs> and the response of the boss to this man is not good. He's mad. He's furious. And he asks him, what happened? And the third guy says, this is the message translation, the third guy says, Master, I know you have high standards and you hate careless ways. I know that you demand the best and you make no allowances for error. Do you hear what he's doing right there? Do you notice? Well, he's prefacing. He senses his master is not happy. And in a way, he's blaming his boss. You have high standards. He's starting out with the master and shifting a little of the blame on him. It reminds me, if you remember in Genesis of Adam's explanation to God in the garden, God says, what happened? And Adam says, well, the woman you gave me (laughs) The woman you put here with me, she started it. Don't look at me. Sometimes it's easier to place the blame on another, on God even, than to face the music, to own up to our own mistakes and insecurities, inferiorities. And this third guy does just that. He says, Master, you have high standards. You demand the best. You expect a lot. And I was afraid I might disappoint you. So I found a good hiding place. I secured your investment. Here it is just as you left it to me, untouched. Ultimately, this man did nothing with the gift given to him because why? Why did he bury it? What does he say? I was afraid. He did nothing with the gift because he was afraid of failure, of rejection, of backlash from his employer. He was afraid that he might not be able to do anything with the gift or to make good on the gift he was given. He was afraid, and out of that fear, he refused the invitation to participate. He didn't play And because he acted out of fearful self-preservation, he caused the very thing he feared to happen. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, where you're you're fearful of something happening so much that 
that trying to avoid it, your actions actually cause that fear to be made manifest. In our first year of marriage, Adair and I were still getting to know each other. We were learning how to cohabitate, how to live together, how to share space with one another. For some reason, I had trouble reading her that, that for sometimes I still do. So if something ever seemed off, I'd ask her, everything all right? You okay? Because honestly, I was fearful that maybe I was doing something wrong. Maybe, maybe something I, I was doing something she didn't like. Maybe I was being annoying. I've come to learn lately that, that I don't really have to ask her if, if, if that's the reason she's going to tell me. But I'd, I'd go up and I'd ask, you okay? She'd say, I'm good. I'd say, you sure? She'd say, yes. And a little later, I'd, you, you sure? You okay? And she'd say, yes. Yes, I'm okay. And a little bit later, you sure you're all right? And she said, she'd say, well, now I'm not. <laughs> I'm getting annoyed now, and the very thing I feared might happen and worked hard to prevent, it just happened. I caused it. And this last worker did the same. He was afraid. For some reason, he was too afraid to participate. He was too afraid to do anything. He was given this gift, and he froze. He was afraid of failure, of mistakes, of disappointment. So he did nothing. He buried it. He worried that he wouldn't be able to play bigger and better, so he didn't. And because of that, the very thing he feared came true. Now, I've got to confess this morning to you all that I sympathize with the third guy. I do, because I've, I've been him, because I am him <laughs> a lot of times. The God of the universe and everything in it offers me chance after chance to get involved in the story that he's telling around me. Almighty God, day after day, gifts me an invitation into his redeeming work in the world. He places people and opportunities in my path, and too many times I'm either too busy to notice, I'm too concerned with other things, or I'm just a little bit afraid, afraid to take risks, afraid to trust God, afraid of what it might cost, and sometimes I'm even a little bit afraid to love people the way that Jesus has called me to do, because I'm more comfortable with status quo, with what I know, and I'm deeply unsettled by the unknown, by what might happen if if it goes wrong. Of course, if I take time to imagine what it is that awaits beyond God's invitation, beyond the unknown. According to the parable, there is everything to be gained. A deeper relationship with God, a partnership in the redemption work of the world, a way for God's grace to inhabit me and use me. A more resounding trust in who God says I am and God's love for me, a more profound love and understanding of my neighbor. But all too often, I seem to be more and more like the third worker who out of fear decides not to not to accept the invitation and refuses to participate in the work and does nothing with the opportunity that he's been given. C.S. Lewis captured this idea, I think, in his work, The Weight of Glory. He said this, it would seem that God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us kind of like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And we'd rather sink into the false stability of the status quo than accept the invitation of infinite possibility of a life with God. Professor William Barclay says this is the exact, exactly the position of the Pharisees, the religious group that Jesus is talking to at this moment. Barclay writes, like the man with the one talent, the Pharisees desired to keep things exactly as they were, and it is for that that they are condemned. 
In this parable, Jesus tells us that there can be no religion, no relationship with God without adventure, and that God can find no use for the shut mind. The condemnation is for the one who, having even one talent, will not try to use it and will not risk it for the common good. And like the master in the parable, God invites us to participate. He invites us to follow him, and he gives us plenty of opportunities to join in on that adventure. And it's like Jesus shares in the, in the next, the immediate next parable, the verses following this passage, Jesus says, some won't accept the invitation to participate. And in the last days, they'll stand in front of Jesus and Jesus will say, where were you? And they'll respond, what do you mean? We didn't even see you. And Jesus will say, I gave you every opportunity to join in, to be a part of my work. I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was homeless, and you gave me no bed. I was shivering, and you gave me no clothes. I was sick and in prison, and you never came to visit. And whenever you failed to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked and ignored, that was me. You failed to do it to me. These were opportunities. These were invitations to love bigger and better, and you had plenty. There were plenty of invitations to join in but you preferred to bury your talent. There's one more part to this parable. It has to do with the master's reaction, his response to the third worker's refusal to get involved. According to the message translation, the master says to the last worker, the decision you've made and what you've done is a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live so cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? And the master continues, take my gift and give it to the one who risked the most and get rid of this play it safe guy who won't go out on a limb. The master is so disappointed in this man's refusal to join in to do something. And my question is why? Why is he disappointed? What is disappointment? I'm glad you asked. Disappointment It's a sadness. It's a displeasure caused by the non-fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations. So why is this master disappointed? I think he's disappointed because he expected the third guy to do something. I think he's disappointed because he hoped that he would. And friends, in my mind, I think the master is mostly disappointed because he knew he could do something. He knew it. It seems to me that the master had greater faith in his employee than the man had in himself. The master believed more in him than he did. And when the master comes back, he's hit with great disappointment because this man's fear kept him from living up to what his master knew he could do. He knew he was capable. The ultimate truth in this parable to me, friends, is that God has extended the invitation to all of us every moment of every day to join in this grace-healing, love redeeming work he is doing in the world, every decision we make, every person we meet is an opportunity to let the love of God take the driver's seat. And when we refuse, when we decline the invitation, when we ignore the signs of the Spirit, the nudging us to do the right thing, to take a new risk, to see what God might be doing, I think that God is filled with sadness because God has so much more faith in us than we do in ourselves, and he knows what we're capable of. Author Kathleen Norris says this, we praise God not to celebrate our own faith, but to give thanks for the faith 
God has in us. I hope you know that this morning. I really do. I hope you know that the God of the universe came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ, taught and healed and cared and loved and died and rose again and sent his spirit upon his friends that they might be the hands and feet because God had faith in them. And God has faith in you. And God has invited you to be a part of that redemption story because he knows what you are capable of. And he has a deep and abiding faith that you can take his love and grace into this world and and double it. One of our favorite movies uh, is the movie about a boy. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Honestly, I can't remember what it's rated, so you're on your own. Uh, But it came out early 2000s, and I'm about to spoil every bit of it, but you had your chance. It's been like 20 years. Um, It follows the story of a bachelor named Will, who's played by Hugh Grant. And Will lives off the money that his parents left him, and they left him a lot. And so Will is wealthy. He's he's lazy. He does whatever he wants. He's kind of on his own island by himself. And because of that, he has shut himself off from the world and any meaningful relationship. Will, I should say, is also kind of a womanizer. He's pretty sleazy. And in fact, Will gets bored, and this is kind of the crux of the conflict. This is where the story really begins. He gets bored with dating the women he's been dating, and at one point, he pretends to be a single parent and joins a single parent support group to meet and date single moms. He's not a good guy, (laughs) in other words. It's It's not a good moment for him. But he starts dating Susie and eventually meets a boy named Marcus, a friend of her son, and Marcus is this awkward kid who doesn't have many friends. He gets bullied at school, and he's on his own island by himself. And when the two meet, Marcus sees right through Will. And throughout the rest of the story, they, of course, everybody finds out that Will is a fraud. He isn't a single parent. And everybody starts thinking poorly of Will. They think the worst, of course. But Marcus sees something greater in Will that Will doesn't see in himself. And he sees the possibility of a friend. And so Marcus starts showing up after school to hang out and watch TV with Will. Every day after school, over and over and over, day after day. There's a scene in the movie where you just see him ring the doorbell every day, every day. He comes to the door, rings the door at the same time, every day, a ring, a knock at the door, and Will always walks to the door begrudgingly, I can't believe I gotta let this kid in. Until one day, Marcus approaches the door, and as he's about to ring that bell, Will suddenly opens the door and welcomes him in before he even rings the bell. And the two become friends, and by the end of the movie, Marcus is no longer the lonely, friendless kid. Will is no longer the immature, sleazy guy who shut himself off from the world. He's changed, he's opened up, and he's a new person, all because this kid saw something in him that he didn't see. Marcus knew there was something deeper. He knew Will could be good. Will didn't know it, but Marcus did. Friends, let it be known today that you have a friend like that. A friend who believes in you even when you don't believe in yourself. Jesus knows there is more to you and to me than we could ever imagine possible. And he's invited us to take part in a plan for the world. And this is not some invitation you say yes to once. It is over and over and over and over. God is knocking and ringing the bell, inviting you to be a part of something incredible and risky and adventurous and unknown kind of like a game of bigger and better 
But the best part of it is God has faith in you and knows what you're capable of. So accept that invitation. Take the gift he hands you, whatever form it comes in, and I know the future may feel unknown, but is it really? Let us pray. God, this morning I'm grateful that you know us so well, that you know each of us, and you know us better than we know ourselves. And sometimes, God, when we lack faith in ourselves, when we don't believe we can follow this, when we don't believe we can love people the way you have loved us, you tell us, no, I believe it. I believe you. I have faith in you. So God, help us to remember that when, whenever you knock, whenever you ring the bell, there's always an invitation in this world. Keep us aware, oh God, every day, every interaction, to know that this could be an interaction where you are trying to do something in this world. And God, remind us daily that you know we can do it, that you have faith in us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.